tonight we have the pleasure of welcoming Sharice Compton to come and to share with us. And Sharice is a dear friend, and Sharice and her family moved here in 2020. We can always remember what was going on in 2020, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and so Sharice had a chance to meet everyone looking like this, right? <laughs> That's right. Sorry. Yeah, so. And then I met them all again about a year later. <laughs> it was like, oh, that's what you look, what like, you look like under yeah. that mask, yeah. But Sharice is one of God's good gifts to us here at the North Church. We are so glad that God moved Sharice uh, and Jared and her family here from Wisconsin. And Sharice has been a part of our Bible study teaching team from virtually the first first few months. For, yeah, I mean, we started in a series on Colossians, and then you brought a study that you'd written on the Psalms that we did during mm -hmm. the winter of 2021. Yep, that's right. So, yeah, we're just delighted that she's a part of this teaching team. She also teaches at Bethlehem College and Seminary in the undergrad program. She teaches grammar and composition, so she's really smart up here. Uh, she's also going to be coordinating a, kind of a welcome ministry kind of program for seminary wives Yes. in the fall, right? That's right. So yeah. to kind of welcome those wives of our seminary students, because she's been there, done that, and has some great wisdom to offer those <laughs> women. So uh, she's married to Jared, who also teaches at Bethlehem College and Seminary. And if you've been around Bible study for a while, you re might remember that he opened our study that we did on the parables. parables. Yeah, parables. And okay. he just preached a couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. So she's also a mom of three kids, ages 12, 14, and 16. So pretty exciting years. You have a driver? <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> okay. A new driver. If you know what it's like to teach someone to drive, you know that that's an anxiety-producing thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I am going to pray, and then we're going to get started. And I'm just, again, so glad you're here, Cherise. So let me pray for you. Yeah. Father, I thank you so much for this dear sister, and I thank you for the gifts that you have given to her that she can share with us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to hear wonderful things from your word tonight because, Lord, you do have the words of eternal life. Your words are beautiful and wonderful, and we want to hear them, and we want our lives to be transformed through them. So we pray for Sharice in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Thank you for praying for me and for those kind words. I aspire for them all to be true. <laughs> okay, so I am very conscious that I am speaking about how we should be speaking tonight, so you can just continue to pray for me that the Lord would put a guard on my mouth <laughs> as I speak about wise speech. So as Pam said, I have a 16-year-old. He turned, my son Asher turned 16 in April, which means he is of legal driving age if he meets all the requirements to get his license, which includes 50 hours of supervised driving time. So now I do not consider myself an anxious person, but when I am driving with my son Asher, I find myself clinging to the armrest of my chair or like gripping the handle above my head, even subconsciously holding my breath. I'm like, wow, how long have I been holding my breath? 
Um, and I work really, really hard to stay calm. I try to just calmly give the as needed instructions, not too many, just as he needs them so I don't alarm or confuse him. And that's, that's my perspective. But Asher's perspective, on the other hand, especially if both parents are in the car, is that he has two parents urgently yelling instructions at him, (laughs) and he feels paralyzed. Who do I listen to? How can I do all those things at once? I mean, last time you said, proceed with caution, and now you're saying, hurry up, don't hesitate. (laughs) So you might feel like that when you read the book of Proverbs. So as adults, we've internalized for driving many of these wise principles. They've become intuitive and automatic. We know when we should slow down. We know when we should speed up. We recognize when it's time to use the horn, right? Just short little burst. None of this like full-handed 10-second ordeal. But we didn't always know these things. We had to learn them, and we had to practice them. And Proverbs is kind of like a driving manual for wise living. It gives general principles like be faithful to your spouse, but then it offers specific instructions in order to keep those principles. Don't go near the door of the forbidden woman's house. Proverbs teaches virtue. It says whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, but then it will qualify that generosity with don't put up security for a neighbor. And sometimes it even seems to offer contradictory advice, as you find in Proverbs 26, 4 to 5. Answer, not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So just like when we needed instruction and practice at driving, we need instruction and practice at wise living. And when it comes to the area of our speech, each of us is at best a student driver, desperately in need of the driver's manual and desperately in need of some practice. So tonight, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna review what the manual has to say about our speech, and then during the discussion time, we're gonna take a test drive and practice wise speech. So if you were able to complete the homework for this lesson, you'll probably remember that it divides pretty easily into two categories. We have foolish and destructive speech, or we have wise, life-giving speech. So we're going old school tonight, dragged the marker board in here. What did you find out? If you want to look through your homework, this is on pages 37 and 39. What did you find out about foolish, or destructive speech? What kinds of speech are foolish and destructive? We're just gonna write some of these things down. Call them out. Devious, that's a good one. Lying, Lying. what else? Perverted. Perverted. Loud. Loud. Crooked, yeah, we have the smooth tongue of the adulteress. What do you think that means? Seductive. Seductive. Well, how does she seduce? She flatters, I would say. That's the tongue of a flatterer. What else? Proud. Proud. Babbling. Babbling. False witness. False witness. Harsh. Yes, harsh. Spreading strife. Okay. Spreading strife. Quarreling. Quarreling. Egotistical. Yes, insincere. Yep, gossiping, 
Good. All right, yeah, those are the main categories. So 424 says put away crooked speech and devious talk far from you. So we, as we talked about, it's perverse. And if it's devious, it's ill-intentioned. It's not seeking the good of others. And then in 6, 17, and 19, as we put up here, we see that God hates a lying tongue, a false witness, and one who sows discord. So again, that's represented with the spreading strife. We saw that foolish speech is loud and ignorant. And that's not to say that people with bigger personalities are necessarily less wise, but it does just simply state a truth about fools. They just brazenly speak about aloud about things they don't understand. 10.8 warns of a related issue. This is the babbling fool. And here again, fools just talk too much. Again, more talkative personalities aren't inherently more sinful than reserved ones, but they might be susceptible to certain kinds of foolish speech. And here, a fool has never learned to bridle her tongue. You know, one of our parenting catchphrases, because I live with a bunch of extroverts, is too many words, too many words, zip it. And uh, that larger section that you came upon in your homework, chapter 10, 11 through 21, here we see a few things about foolish speech. We see it stirs up strife and it invites a beating. And I'll tell you, that's one of my other parenting catchphrases. You are asking for a spanking. Or as my boys have gotten older, I'm more inclined to say, you're gonna get punched if you don't learn to bite your tongue. Okay, but also from that section, we see that foolish speech often slanders and it accuses. And interestingly enough, we also find that fools are strangely quiet when they should talk. In Proverbs 10, 11 through 21, we see that they conceal violent crimes so that evil goes unpunished, but then they show zero restraint when they ought to keep quiet. In chapter 15, 1 and 2, and then in verse 18, we see that foolish speech, as we wrote up here, is often harsh, it's often angry, and it's provocative. It needlessly stirs up fights. There's a proverb that talks about throwing more wood on a fire when you ought to be dousing it with water, and that is what foolish speech does. What's, what kind of speech is foolish in 1628? Find that one on your chart. Okay, spread strife. Yeah, whispering. What do you think that means? Yeah, I think that's the gossiper. It's somebody who trades in secrets. Or then it drop down to 17.9. We have somebody who repeats a matter, the same thing along these lines, gossiping. And the result is often that a gossiper, somebody who repeats a matter, separates close friends. So gossip is often slanderous and provocative. It stirs up fights and it ruins friendships. You know, I love the realism of Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22. This is the first uh, scripture on your handout, number one. There will always be people who slander and gossip and people who repeat a matter. But here's the advice from Ecclesiastes. Do not pay attention to every word that is spoken or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. 
So don't eavesdrop. Don't be paying attention too much to what people are saying. You will be the victim of foolish and destructive speech at some point in your life. But let those whispers and rumors and overheard remarks just kind of fall on deaf ears. Pay it no mind and be ready to forgive. Knowing that if you are honest, you too have said some pretty ugly things or at least thought some pretty ugly things about other people in your life. You know, hating one another and being hated is the human condition. That's what we're told in Titus 3.3. This is what this is what humanity is like outside of Jesus. But God will deal with the sin one way or another. So take the advice of Ecclesiastes and pay it no mind. All right, what about Proverbs 21.19? We got quarrelsome on the board. What other word is used for foolish speech there? 21.19. Okay, some translations say contentious. I think the ESV says fretful. Was it fretful in your books? Okay, I like that word fretful. Fretful speech is speech that is full of worry and anxieties. And then Proverbs 27.2, I don't think was in your homework, but here's another category of speech. Actually, we mentioned it, proud. So Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. So this rules out boasting or proud speaking. And then Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So a fool doesn't care about the truth or nuance or details. They just rush to judgment and spew out foolish words. And then finally, the last verse I think I had you look up, or the second to last, is Proverbs 25.20. What kind of foolish speech do we see in this verse? Yeah, that's right. It's inappropriate or ill-timed speaking. Our culture might say that this person has no emotional intelligence. They are singing celebratory songs to somebody who's grieving. All right, so in that list, seems pretty exhaustive, right? Did anything surprise you? No surprises? Is anything missing? I thought it was interesting going through the book that there isn't much mention of complaining. So quarrelsome and contentious may hit at that a bit, but given Old Testament Israel's propensity for grumbling against the Lord, I was surprised that not more was made of that. Also, I didn't see anything about profanity or even taking the Lord's name in vain. I thought that was interesting. Proverbs is not exhaustive but it comes pretty close. And I think the foundation for the book of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. So there is this assumption that you have those first four commandments of loving the Lord and not worshiping idols and keeping his commandments. You have that as your foundation. And the book of Proverbs deals very much with some of the other commandments, the neighbor to neighbor, the way we interact with our neighbors. But more than anything else, and maybe you realize this after you did pages and pages and pages of homework, that more than anything else, Proverbs addresses the words that come out of our mouths or the words that don't come out of our mouths. More than any other area of our living, the Proverbs speaks to our words. 
So it's clear as you read that Solomon was an astute observer of human nature, right? He recognized patterns of foolish speech and the effect of it. This kind of speech, as we said, it stirs up fights, it separates friends, it destroys neighbors, it can tear churches apart, it flatters, manipulates, and lies. The people who speak like this love to find fault. They are accusers like the devil. They love to argue. They have proud hearts that exalt themselves above others. They are people who love to be at the center. They will brag, subtly or not, about their possessions and their accomplishments. They talk too much. They show no restraint, speaking loudly about subjects they aren't qualified to talk about. These are the kinds of people who harbor jealousies, and they take a perverse delight in seeing the people they are jealous of humbled and suffering. These are people who reject good advice and who rebel against authority. And you can find them everywhere, complaining at the local coffee shop, fretting in line at the pharmacy, backstabbing behind the counters at Walmart, making obscene gestures from the driver's seat, whispering in the church pews, they are, si- they are never silent, and they are everywhere. In fact, that kind of person is right here, because the potential for foolish speech resides in each of us. As James says, the potential for foolish speech, it's like a fire in our mouths, just waiting to break out and destroy everything in its path. So if you nurture just a little hatred for the woman across the aisle at church, that will come out in your speech. If you coddle just a little self-righteousness toward your husband, you can be sure that attitude will also spill out in your speech. You may manipulate the truth to make yourself look better or cast out on somebody else's reputation. If you take a secret joy in repeating the failures of others, if you smirk when another woman's kid publicly misbehaves, if you are difficult to please, if your words to your family are often fault-finding or shaming, if you continually greet your husband with worries, if you are irritable, or if you tend to wallow in self-pity, if you're discontent with your circumstances, if you're unhappy with the way you look or the shape of your body, your speech will show it. And Proverbs is here, like a good driving instructor, to urgently warn you, look, there are deadly dangers ahead if you persist down this road of foolish speech. So number two on your handout, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. There is a better way to go. And Solomon doesn't just warn us about the deadly paths, He shows us the good ones. So now let's talk about something a little more encouraging. (laughs) What kinds of speech are wise? This is on pages 40 and 41 in your homework. Let's jot down some categories of wise speech or even the way Solomon, what Solomon compares wise speech with. What do you have? Fountain of life. Loving and Protecting, okay. Truthful. Gentle. Prudent, that's a good one. 
I heard restrained and encouraging. Gracious. Gracious. Choice silver. I'll put that up here with fountain of life. Sweet. Yep. Good. Appropriate. Thoughtful. Healing. Good. Soft, I think somebody said. Kind. Kind. Joyful. All right. I think even just recording those, don't you just feel better? (laughs) That first list is really kind of demoralizing, but to think our speech could be all these things is really a beautiful thing. So rather than being crooked, we we saw in uh, what was that four chapter four that crooked or foolish speech is crooked and devious, and rather than being crooked and devious, wise speech is pure. It is honest. It's full of knowledge and truth. And if you look at verse 15, 18, we see that he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So wise speech is the opposite of stirring up strife. It's actually peacemaking. Rather than using flattery and manipulation, wise speech is judicious. Maybe another translation says prudent. But it makes good judgments. It doesn't rush to judgment. It makes good judgments. It's gracious. Rather than being loudly ignorant and constantly babbling, wise speech is restrained and discerning. And then in 15.4, we see it's gentle. And then from the passage about the Proverbs 31 woman, we see it's kind. So wise women don't slander and accuse and loudly repeat everyone's mistakes. They forgive They forget sin, refusing to keep talking about it or spreading it further. Rather than being harsh, angry, and provocative, wise speech, as we saw, is gracious. It's sweet. And as such, did you catch this in chapter 16, 23, and 24, and then again in 15, 1 and 2? Wise speech, because it's gentle, gracious, and sweet, is persuasive. Wise words actually win the ear of their audience, where foolish speech creates hostility. Gracious and sweet words adorn the truth, and it makes it so much more attractive. We can't just speak the truth without regard to our tone. How we speak it matters. What about 2128? What did you find there about wise speech? If fools are quick to express their own opinions, what do the wise do? That's right. They are quick to listen and slow to speak. And then we saw, in contrast to the fool who who sings happy songs to a grieving person, we see that the wise speak appropriately. She offers real consolation and lament to a grieving person. And then we saw all these things that Solomon compares wise speech with. He compares it to gold and costly stones. It's a precious jewel in 2015. It's like choice silver, as we said over here. Wise speech is valuable. Women who consistently speak this way are a treasure. And this is in contrast with Proverbs 27, 15, 16. I'm going to read it from the message because I think it's really poignant the way the message translates this. A nagging spouse is like the drip, 
drip, drip of a leaky faucet. You can't turn it off and you can't get away from it. But the words of the wise are compared to a satisfying meal, not the drip, drip, drip of a faucet, but something satisfying and something nurturing. We see that in 1021. The lips of the righteous feed many. And it's also compared to the work of a doctor. We see that in 1218. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Isn't that beautiful? Wise speech is truly beautiful. It is healing. It is calming. It is nurturing. It gives real help, honest answers, loving guidance. It seeks the good of the listener. It rebukes as needed. It ministers grace, mercy, and insight. It pursues peace. It listens long, seeking knowledge and understanding before rushing to judgment. It is gently persuasive, adorning wisdom so that even a fool can see its attraction and maybe even turn from their wicked ways. Wise speech is appropriate for the occasion. It is kind. A word spoken at the right time, do you remember this verse? Is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Don't you want to be the kind of woman who speaks this way? I think it is our words more than anything else that distinguish us as the children of God. So here's a little assignment for you this week. Listen to all the interactions you hear from people outside church this week. For me, this happens at the sidelines, at soccer games and track events, at bands and choir concerts, in the neighborhood with neighbors, with clerks and healthcare workers. And you know what I hear? I hear the constant berating talk of a gossip. Evil and ungracious complaints about husbands and teachers and coaches and bosses and in-laws and other families in the neighborhood. I've heard other I've heard parents make the most merciless judgment about other people's children. And I remember once taking my seat at a soccer game only to notice the two women behind me abruptly stopped their conversation. I do not know what they were talking about, but they clearly did not want me to hear it. And and I know why. I it doesn't take long for unsaved people to recognize you don't want to engage in the kind of ungracious speech that very freely comes off their tongues. But I was privy to some pretty ugly speech by parents on my kids' soccer teams. And I remember one time, a mom, after repeating something she had no business repeating, turned and apologized to me. Not to the person she just slandered, to me. (laughs) And I share that just to say, the world will know you by your speech. Out of all the ugly sins in our culture which defy our God, I'm not sure that any is as pernicious and as insidious as the devious and crooked speech of a fool. And that is because our words are the inevitable outflow of what is in our hearts. In Luke 6.45, this is number three on your handout, Jesus said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Can you say the rest with me? For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. 
So our words disclose what's in our hearts. They're just like a barometer. Other people can read it and kind of gauge your spiritual condition. And Jeremiah 17.9 reveals what the universal spiritual condition of humanity is. Look at number four on your handout. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the universal condition, we are all desperately sick, terminally ill. And to make matters worse, there are no doctors capable of diagnosing or treating the heart disease, except one. Look at 1710. It goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Well, why does he do this? Why does he search our hearts? To give to every man according to his ways, and these ways include the very words we speak. He gives to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So God searches the heart, and he will deal with all of us according to what he finds there. In fact, in Matthew twelve thirty-six, this is number five on your handout, he will judge us according to what we have spoken. Here, Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Our words are enough to condemn us before God because they reflect the condition of our hearts. No one can stand up under this scrutiny. No one passes the speech test because we are all, our hearts are all desperately sick. That's the bad news. God has searched your heart. He has heard every word, even the ones you whispered to yourself when you thought nobody was listening. And every one of us has been found guilty. And as such, we can only expect repayment for all the evil we have done. Unless, unless someone else can take the punishment for us. And such is God's love for us. Though our hearts were desperately sick, and though our own words constantly betray that wickedness in our hearts, God repaid someone else for our evil deeds. And not just anyone else, he punished a perfect man, one who stood up to the searching and testing of the Lord. No evil was ever found in Jesus' heart, and no foul word on his tongue. Look at number six on your handout. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Even his speech was perfect. This man, Jesus, perfect even in his speech, was rewarded for our evil deeds. And that is the good news, but it gets better than that. In Jesus, we don't just avoid repayment for our evil deeds. God actually rewards us for Jesus' good deeds and his wise words. And if you have repented of your sins, when God searches your heart, he sees the goodness and the perfection of Jesus. He has healed your heart, and now you are free to stop committing the evil deeds and the evil words, to start storing up good treasures in your heart so that your mouth out of the abundance of the good can now pour out good treasures. 
So it is, as Christians, absolutely possible for all of us, if we have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, to speak life-giving words, just like Jesus did. So that's what I want to talk about next. Three governing truths for our speech. If we are going to pursue wisdom in our speech, we need to remember these three governing truths. And the first one is you will sin. You are going to fail at this. Remember, you are still just a student driver. You are learning, but you aren't perfect. And your speech is the outworking of what is in your heart. Your heart, you may have a new and healthy heart, but it isn't yet perfect, so you will slip up. But number seven on your handout, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, what happened? Grace, grace increased all the more. And there is grace for every foul word. There is grace for every time you misspeak. When you sin with your mouth and you evaluate the heart behind your words, repent of those sins, make them right, and then rejoice because you get to experience afresh the wonderful grace of God who delights to forgive sin. He doesn't want your penance. He doesn't need your self-loathing. He takes no pleasure when you wallow in guilt. Despair is the realm of the devil. Instead, Psalm 51, 16, and 17, number eight on your handouts. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. No, not with those things. Here's what the Lord really wants. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that will not despise here is just classic literary understatement. Because God despises a haughty look and a lying tongue, but he loves a humble, repentant heart. A humble, repentant sinner is exactly the kind of person to whom God draws very near. Proverbs 24, 16, number nine on your handout says, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. So principle number one, you will sin, but God has made provision for that. Repent, receive the forgiveness that is promised you, and then get up, keep learning, keep practicing. The second principle is you will grow. So as you consistently repent of your sins, as the blood of Jesus freshly cleanses you, you will gradually change and grow. And it is growth, not perfection, that is the defining feature of a Christian's life. We are not what we should be. We're student drivers. But praise God, we are not what we were. So I think one of the best faith-building exercises a Christian can do is to remember what we were like before God saved us, or to go back and remember the kinds of things you struggled with as a newer believer. So I was a really proud, jealous person. In elementary school, I was jealous of the girl in my class. She was really pretty, she was really rich, she was kind of good at everything, and I didn't like her very much. In middle school, I was jealous of the girl who was picked over me for the varsity volleyball team. 
In high school, I was jealous of the girl who consistently scored better than me in math. <laughs> in college, I was jealous of the girl with that easy, extroverted, everybody loves her personality. And it was hard for me to admit that these girls had things I didn't have or they were just better than me at some things. But through the years, and, and it took a lot of years, but God patiently and gently revealed to me what, my, what was in my heart. I was deceived. I, I saw these things and didn't think much of them. But he showed me the truth about myself. I was guilty of idolatry by coveting the things that God had given to others. I thought I deserved them. I wanted to be special. I wanted the glory that came from being pretty rich, smart, athletic, and popular. And it's kind of embarrassing, and it sounds pretty ridiculous when you say it out loud, doesn't it? Why don't you do that? Say those desires that are kind of deep down in your heart. Say them out loud and see what you really think of them. <laughs> see just how ugly they are. When you say them out loud, you, gotta, you kind of have to confront reality. But this glory-seeking idolatry overflowed in my speech, and not exactly in the way you would expect. I actually had a sinful pattern of withholding praise or encouragement from someone if I was jealous of their gifts or accomplishments. So I was silent when I should have spoken. I remember owning this uh, deeply rooted sin before the Lord and asking for help in overcoming this thing that had been trying to just poison my heart for years. Well, in this process, with God's help, one of the ways I determined to resist and kill that sin was to intentionally speak life-giving words. So when I detected that green-eyed monster in my heart, I would immediately stop and pray for the Lord to bless that person. And then, if it was in my power to encourage or honor her, I would do it. I would say, not very graciously at first, good job, <laughs> well done or what a gift your personality is, or don't you look lovely today? <laughs> and you know what? You know what? As I stepped forward in obedience, in time, that got a lot easier. And those things be, it just started to flow out of me. God helped me to come to truly admire their gifts and the way they were investing them for God's glory. And I found that I didn't have to force myself to acknowledge that or to honor them or encourage them. So God has, he has truly, truly transformed me in this area. And I am so grateful because that was really ugly. I don't want to be like, I don't want to be that person again. So I'm very grateful for what God has done in my heart. And that is not to say I'm perfect, of course, or above temptation. But what I can say is when you go to war against the sin, you will see some victories. You will grow. The enemy does begin to retreat when you consistently resist him. And even if he kind of launches a surprise attack at your flank when you weren't expecting it, you've been trained and you have been practicing. You are not unarmed and you are not unaware of his tactics. And you can recognize the temptation for what it is. So you take up those familiar weapons. You put on the shield of faith, the belt of truth, you wield the sword of the spirit and you fight that temptation before it becomes this full-fledged invasion. So two things to remember, you will sin, but you will grow. You will grow in this area of wise speech as God reveals the sins of your heart and you go to war against them. And you will grow 
because, and this is more than anything else, what I want you to take with you tonight. You're gonna grow because God will help you. That's simple words, but such a profound truth. So number 10 on your handout, Psalm 121.2. My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. Who is your helper? Only the one who made heaven and earth. God is at your right hand. The one who never sleeps is by your side all night long. The one who did not spare his own son for your sake will happily continue to give you everything you need to grow in this area of wise speech. So let's just consider how he helps us for a moment. Call them out. Let's make a list of all the ways God helps us. Has he helped you? Okay. Yes, he convicts us. How does he convict us? Through the Holy Spirit? And friends? Yes. Okay, good. So he gives us the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promised to give when he went back to heaven to guide us into truth. The Holy Spirit actually has taken up residence in our heart. What does he often use, the Holy Spirit, to bring conviction or encouragement? The Bible, that's right. He accompanies the word with power. We have the word, the life-giving words of God himself. And we know those words are living and active, Hebrews 4.12. So we were first saved by the word, right? Romans 10, nobody comes to faith unless they hear the preaching of the word. And James 1.21 talks about receiving the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We, that is where our faith, that's where our faith was born, and that is where our faith will grow. You don't Stop needing the word the moment you are saved. We need it to keep growing. That is one of God's primary ways of helping us. What else? Yeah, good. The church. We need each other. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's empowering. I love the, um, what is it, Hebrews. I have it here somewhere. Ten. Suffering. The training of suffering. Yep. Hebrews 12, yeah, to those who are trained by it. Nobody likes a trial, but to those who are trained by it, it will yield a harvest of righteousness and peace. Yeah, suffering. Um, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 was what I was trying to think about earlier. So that's the verse about how we stir one another up toward love and good deeds. We need each other to do that. No, this life was never intended to be walked in isolation. We have to have each other. Any other helps? What about the many promises in the Bible? That's a category of the word, I suppose. But what about this one? I think this is an often overlooked promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is number 12 on your handout. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you believe that? Do you believe when you're tempted that you don't have to sin? And if you just look around, there is a way of escape. God has promised it's there. You might think, as I often do, no, I really need to yell at my daughter in this moment. That's the only way, I have to do it. 
but it's not true. That's a lie. There is a way of escape. God has promised not to tempt us beyond what we're able. Yeah, the act of calling on the Lord. Yep, that's good. Prayer, yep. All right, those are good. But you know, I want to point out an often overlooked help that God reveals to us right here in the book of Proverbs, a specific help regarding the area of our speech. Look at Proverbs 18, 20, and 21. It's number 15 on your handout. It says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it, life, will eat its fruits. Did you catch the help that God offers here? It's the satisfaction that speaking wisely brings. Virtue is its own reward, we might say. But earlier we talked about, from Proverbs 16, the mouth of the righteous feeding many. Well, the speaker of those wise words, she gets to feast first on her own buffet of wise words. So when you use your mouth for good, according to this verse, it's kind of like tasting a red, juicy, crisp watermelon on a warm summer evening's barbecue. It's like eating one of Harry and David's pears at Christmas time. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Those pears are amazing. (laughs) Speaking wisely is as enjoyable and as nurturing to your soul as good food is to your body. And no one understood this better than Jesus. In his encounter with the woman at the well in John 4, Not only does Jesus speak the truth in gentle, kind, and persuasive ways, not only does he judiciously handle the matter of her adultery, not only does he wisely draw out her heart like she was drawing out the water from the well, not only does he masterfully turn the topic of conversation, they're talking about thirst and water, he turns it into a metaphor for the eternal longings of her soul, Not only does he feed her with the words of life and heal her with his truth, not only do his words feed many as she turns and runs to speak the words of life to her whole town, because it wasn't just the Samaritan woman and the happy townspeople who drank in Jesus' words that day and were satisfied. It was Jesus himself who was satisfied with the fruit of his wise words. If you have your Bibles, you can look at John 4, 8 with me. I'll show you why I say this. So at the beginning of John 4, Jesus and his band of disciples are traveling, and Jesus says, I need, we need to go through Samaria. They go to Samaria. They are tired, hungry, and thirsty from their journeys. Jesus sits at the well while his disciples go into the town to buy food, because again, they were hungry. So while, this is at John 4, 8, so while the disciples were shopping for a meal to satisfy their bellies, Jesus was enjoying another kind of meal. Drop down to verse 31 in John 4. Here the disciples return with food and they urge Jesus to eat, but he says, I have food to eat you do not know about. 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, Jesus accomplished God's work by speaking the words of life, and he enjoyed the fruits of his mouth. When we obey God, when our our hearts are working properly and our mouths speak from the abundance of good treasures inside, we too are satisfied. Jesus was delighted by the fruits of his conversation with the Samaritan woman and with so many others in her town. So satisfies, it appears, that his physical appetite was diminished. He didn't eat the food the disciples brought back. He had other food that was much more satisfying. Well, spiritual food has a way of making the normal stuff we fill our bellies with less satisfying. Our spiritual appetites, when they're hungering after the Lord, they just have a way of making all those other appetites eh, less exciting. It's great to feast and have a full stomach, but nothing, nothing is more rewarding than doing the good works that God has called us to do. Nothing will make you happier than opening your redeemed mouth and speaking of all the glories of Christ. Nothing is more rewarding than seeing God take our little words and multiply their fruits just as he did with the little boy's loaves and fishes. He can take your words the overflow of a transformed heart, and feed many. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Let's pray. Father, we want, we really want to open our mouths and speak life to those around us, but we need your help, and you are so quick to give it. So in these remaining moments, will you help us speak wisely to one another? And will you feed our souls with the exchange of words that occur around the table so that our church is strengthened and you get the glory? In Jesus' name, amen.